From CJSR FM 88.5, I'm Matt Hergy. They say that you should never judge a book by its cover. But have you ever found yourself browsing in your local bookstore and come across a book with a cover that just seems to leap out at you? There's a fairly good chance that that particular book cover was designed by Chip Kidd. Dubbed by many as the closest thing to a rock star in the graphic design world, Kidd has designed more than 1,500 book covers for authors like David Sedaris, Cormac McCarthy, and Haruki Murakami. Put simply, Kidd has revolutionized the book cover as we know it. It makes sense, then, that Kidd is concerned about the rise of the e-book. After all, the Kindles and the Kobos strip away all of the tactileness of the physical object, the feeling of the paper, the dog ears. And, you know, even if you want to get uh, sentimental about it, the smell of the ink. And there's a real craft to, to bookmaking. That Not that there isn't a craft to making an app, but it's just a different kind of aesthetic experience. This is the CJSR edition. Today on the program, writer, illustrator, and graphic designer Chip Kidd speaks with CJSR's Roshni Nair about his career as a book cover designer for Nomf Press and his philosophies towards book cover design today. But first, we're heading out on a 41-foot cutter to navigate through the labyrinth of fjords, inlets, and islands known as the Great Bear Rainforest on the coast of British Columbia. Our captain, none other than the journalist, social justice advocate, and writer of the 2013 book, The Oil Man and the Sea, Arno Kopetsky. Back in the summer of 2012, in the wake of the announcement that Enbridge was in the planning stages of building a new twin pipeline system running from Edmonton to a new marine terminal in Kitimat, British Columbia, Arno Kopetsky and his friend Ilya Herb sailed into the controversy. Concerned of the increased possibility of an oil spill as more and more tankers entered British Columbia's fragile coastal ecosystem if the Northern Gateway pipeline was approved, Kopetsky and Herb decided to sail the 200 nautical miles from Sydney on Vancouver Island to the terminus of the proposed Northern Gateway pipeline in Kitimat, British Columbia. The end result of the trip is a compelling narrative detailing the treacherous relationships between big oil and local governments, economic growth, and sustainable futures. The book is The Oil Man and the Sea, published by Douglas and McIntyre. The Oil Man and the Sea, page 252. The point then, or or rather the question, has to do with growth itself. Namely, at what point do the costs of growing our economy outweigh the benefits? 
with a handful of notable exceptions, no politician or influential economist is willing to take this question seriously. Seeing as we live on a demonstrably finite planet, the pursuit of endless economic growth seems like a risky paradigm to follow, and yet we pursue it more doggedly today than ever, fueling it with oil every step of the way. North Americans have the good fortune to occupy one of the least crowded corners of this increasingly populated planet, but even here, with all this space and in the midst of an unexpected oil glut, the dangers of reckless growth rear their head from time to time. With that in mind, it's worth looking beyond the obvious rules that could have saved Lac Megantique and focusing on why we weren't there in the first place. From CJSR FM 88.5, my name is Matt Hergy. I'm joined in studio today by journalist, travel writer, and author of The Oil Man and the Sea, Arno Kopetsky. Mr. Kopetsky, thank you very much for coming down to the CJSR studios today. I want to start our conversation at the postscript of your book, where you discuss a tragedy that happened on July 6, 2013. That's the day when a 72-car train carrying heavy crude oil crashed into the southern Quebec town of Lac Magnétique. Mr. Kopetsky, you use this incident as a launching point to encourage us to rethink the paradigm of economic growth at all costs. So could you perhaps elaborate on that? Sure, yeah. I mean, so Lac Megantique was this, you know, horrific event where basically half of downtown Lac Megantique, it's a small town in Quebec, half of it was incinerated basically by this runaway train that flew off the tracks, at, you know, just after, just before last call, basically around just shortly after midnight and uh, killed 47 people, as you say. And, and so as soon as, you know, it wasn't long after that happened that a lot of proponents of pipelines in Canada were saying, you know, see what happens when we don't use pipelines? This is why we need more pipelines, because otherwise we'll put the oil on trains, and then these horrible like, accidents will happen. And, and so, you know, they were really kind of, that was sort of the conversation that was arising out of that. And to me, it just seemed like a really clear sign that there's actually a much deeper thing going on, that this isn't about pipelines versus rail versus oil tankers so much. I mean, if the if our only goal is to avoid incinerating entire towns, then maybe, you know, we should be arguing for pipelines. I think the safety record is about 0.001% better overall for pipelines than rail. Uh, but yeah, the deeper point to me was that this is actually about totally unmanaged growth. And it's happening in the oil industry more than just about any other industry in Canada where we're seeing we have a national infrastructure of several hundred thousand kilometers of pipeline and rail, and that infrastructure is crumbling. And instead of focusing on, you know, putting in place the kinds of regulations that would prevent these disasters from happening, we're, we're just transfixed with building new pipelines and getting more oil to market all the time. Of course, Stephen Harper and the Conservative government have said they want to double production in the oil sands uh, by the year 2030, I believe it is. Uh, and, you know, so my so my take on this is that, you know, here we are. It actually boils down to this very fundamental thing of being living on a finite planet. 
and many of these resources are finite. Definitely fossil fuels are finite. So we need to figure out a way to manage our economies that keeps them dynamic and, and going, but also that doesn't just, you know, the only goal for economists right now, mainstream economists, is growth. Growth at all costs. And what we're seeing is that all costs are actually pretty high when you don't manage your growth. And so Lac Mégantique was this thing where they couldn't even, you know, there was no policy in place that trained companies that were transporting oil, they didn't even have to hire a single person to watch the train overnight. Uh, so what had happened was the train was parked on a hilltop overnight and it was left alone and the brakes failed and it rolled down the hill and killed all these people. Uh, the train cars themselves were out of date and not very sturdy. All these things that could have been easily, if we were focused on, you know, managing our growth a little better, these, it would have been avoidable. You talk about the need, no pun intended, to get off that train yeah. of, of that paradigm where, where growth is the only goal. How, how do we go about doing that then? Well, so that's almost a subject of another book, and I don't know if I'm necessarily qualified to write it. You know, I just think it beca- it starts with a recognition that these things are finite. Um, I think there's other ways to envision growth than just consuming more of everything all the time. So perhaps it is a, me- a means of, you know, a way of envisioning growth as growth in complexity, as a growth in, you know, technological innovation, as growth, you know, there's all kinds of ways to look at how we're going to grow. But if we don't keep pretending that the earth is infinite, then we're, you know, we're already coming up against all of these boundaries. And I think with, you know, the reason, there's a very good reason that growth is at the bottom of our economic things. It's because growth is like the most fundamental imperative for any biological organisms. Humans, the urge to grow and to reproduce is is fundamental. And our population has been growing since we were born as a species. But now we're starting to figure out that we need to level off and population worldwide is starting to level off. And so when you don't have more people coming into the market all the time, you don't necessarily need to create new jobs all the time. So there's that's, I think, the big, a big challenge for our generation and the ones coming up is going to be a find is going to be to find a way to manage our economies in a in a zero growth, uh, you know, some sort of achieve some sort of dynamic equilibrium. You use an example in the book that I, I f- found particularly vivid was the idea of traveling up this Mount Olympus where we can't see the end and we can't see where it will fall off. Right. And I think that just alludes to how dangerous this path that we're traveling on is. Yeah, so that uh, that sort of illusion was if you looked at a chart of economic growth and you would see it going up and up and up because, of course, all of our economies have been growing. But we can't see the end of it. And, and you know, history has taught us if you look at a lot of cycles, whether in the natural, you know, in ecosystems or economies alike, booms like this do tend to be followed by busts. And, you know, we saw that, for example, with the East Coast cod supply. They were getting their biggest catches up until a year or two before it was just gone and it hasn't recovered since. So, again, you know, that's where I think if if we could find, you know, the term of dynamic equilibrium, when you think of old growth forests, 
that's what they have achieved. And I think if we could s try to model our economy on that somewhat, where you have these periods of growth, and then you stabilize, and then you're just trying to maintain that stability rather than this, this infinite growth at all costs. It seems like a lot of you're using words like old growth forest. And yeah. It's a ecosystem. Trying like to set the, set the mood We're here. We're setting the mood for <laughs> yeah. this trip that you went on yeah. uh, from Sydney, uh, British Columbia, to uh, Kitimat, the terminus, uh, terminal of the northern, the proposed Northern Gateway Pipeline. Right. What motivated you to go on that trip? Well, you know, I had just come back from uh, another trip. I had spent a year in the Amazon in 2009 and 10, and I was... At home, I live in Squamish, just north of Vancouver on the West Coast, and I was writing a book about those travels. And the book was, it was a travelogue where I had spent a lot of time with indigenous communities in the Amazon rainforest and was looking at the impacts of globalization on those communities and those ecosystems that they lived in. And globa by globalization, in this case, I was looking particularly at a lot of the mining and oil exploration companies that were operating in the Amazon, and, and many of them are Canadian. And so as I was writing that story, uh, Northern Gateway started taking up more and more and more of, of the news headlines here in Canada. And the parallels were really, really striking. So, you know, with Joe Oliver, right before the public hearings began into the, into the Northern Gateway, we had our Minister of Natural Resources publish an open letter to his countrymen saying that anybody opposed to Northern Gateway is a radical and is opposed to the development of their country and they're opposed to jobs and and it was this really inflammatory letter that's kind of notorious and, and I think pretty well known now in Canada. And then soon after that happened, uh, Prime Minister Harper and the Conservatives passed Bill C-38, which just completely gutted Canada's environmental re uh, protection regulation, regulatory apparatus. And so these were both things that had actually happened exactly in, in Peru, and, and, and uh, which is where I was. I had seen this... You know, their president had written an open letter and then passed a series of decrees that gutted environmental protections. And then, you know, much of it in order to be able to pass free trade agreements with Canada and the U.S. And then sure enough, now we're looking at a free trade agreement with China, which is a huge investor, not just in the Northern Gateway project, but in the tar sands generally. So that was the kind of the background that was going on with all this. And then I... You know, those parallels were so striking, I thought, holy cow, this is now, the things that I've seen in other third world countries are now really coming home to roost, and it's happening exactly in, in our country. And it made me realize that Northern Gateway is actually, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great story in a way for a journalist because it's, it's so rooted in a specific geography and, and, and number of protagonists. Uh, but it's also a universal story because it's happening all over the world in, in various guises. You know, this is uh, emblematic, I think, of a certain struggle that's that's playing out against the world, which is of an economic model that has profited many people very greatly. And, and I would count myself among them as, as a middle class white kid who grew up at Edmonton. You know, I'm one of the people who's profited from this this sort of plunder and sell model of, of economics. But uh, I think that we're now quickly coming to see that it's not going to keep working for the next century or two the way it did for the last. And we need to find a way to change. And that story is, is to me, as, as, a, as a writer and a journalist and, and a human being, uh, it's, it really strikes me as the story of our times. And it's fascinating to me. I think where this book is really, really successful is that through your journey of navigating that uh, route of the, of the tankers of the Northern Gateway Pipeline, yeah. you... Uh, get rid of that abstracted debate and you really sort of focus in on the people living around there and how how 
a potential environmental disaster would affect those people's lives for a very, very long period of time. Was that intentional? Yeah, it was. I think with the environmental movement as a whole, it's a, a central problem. I mean, it's been hugely successful in some ways. You know, everybody now, we grew up in the environmentally aware generation. Everybody knows about climate change. So it's not really news to anybody, but it still can seem like a very abstract idea and abstract issues, especially, you know, I just flew into Edmonton today. It's like minus 15 out. Everyone's like, what climate change? But so, you know, it's, I think it's easy to, if you're not living in the Arctic where, you know, you're, you're witnessing the ice caps recede, or things like that, if you're not living on the Maldives where the ocean is actually about to swallow up your islands, it's easy to think of all these environmental issues as sort of abstract notions for us urban dwellers. Uh, and I think one way to really bring these stories home and, and make people care is is to attach it to, to humans, to human stories, which is kind of any any good novel, any good movie, any good story, pretty much you need humans to really identify with it and to care about it. And uh, so, you know, with me, when I was looking at Northern Gateway and, and I focused, the oil man in the sea focuses on the oil tanker routes. I spent three months on a sailboat exploring where those oil tanker routes would go. But I'd been, before we left, I, I'd been hearing about all of these, you, you know, all of, whether it's, it's either going to save the world or it's going to ruin the world, you know, and it's, it was so hyperbolic on both sides. But very few of the people, whether they were journalists or businessmen who were talking about it, uh, or politicians had actually spent time in the Great Bear Rainforest. And so I thought, uh, you know, what is this place like? The Great Bear Rainforest is, is where these oil tankers would be navigating and who lives there. And so a huge part of this trip was to just get a chance to spend time with the coastal First Nations in particular who live there and, and hear some of their stories and to put a human face on, on this abstract story that was just about economics. Page 105. The story of disappearing species is already so familiar, even now at its beginning, as to belong somewhere in the realm between proverb and cliché. But the fact that its human population has declined over the past two centuries does make the central coast of British Columbia somewhat anomalous. The region's hyperabundance once supported one of the greatest population densities ever seen in non-agricultural societies, with conservative estimates uh, putting just the height sucks pre-contract population at 30,000. That was and is just one of the seven other nations sharing what is now the Great Bear Rainforest a region whose present-day population barely matches that of the original Heitzak clan alone. Today there are some uh, 2,600 living Heitzak, about half of whom live in Bella. That's no small miracle, considering that in early 20th century, the Heitzak population dropped to below 200. Over the course of this book, you really get a, a really vivid description uh, of this ecosystem that is so thriving, yet so on the brink of 
of something coming along and devastating yeah. that whole very carefully calibrated system. Well, that's the sense that I that I that I got there is you know it's it, it does it's this place that sort of has an axe hanging over its throat, and so you know we're talking about the Great Bear Rainforest. It's a huge space, the central coast of BC. It's about the size of Switzerland, seventy thousand square kilometers, and it's not a stranger to, to human industry. Lots of logging and fishing has gone on there, and too much of each. But in the last twenty years, there's been a real lull in both of those things, as as for for a number of reasons, but. You know the uh, softwood markets have kind of crashed in in the U.S. So, and and they've just logged out most of the old growth there. So there's not that it's not as profitable as it used to be. And and the same with fishing, they've overfished and a lot of fish stocks have have crashed. Uh, and yet it's still the most one of the most abundant, prolific fishing grounds in the world today. And so, but with this last twenty years of of sort of industrial decline in that region, there's been a huge bounce back in in basically every animal in, in the ecosystem. So grizzly bears, uh, whales, you know, the humpback whale population has quintupled along the, along the central coast. We had hunted those animals to extinction in the late 60s. They're just bouncing back now. Salmon stocks are starting to recover. Herring are starting to recover. All of these keystone species. And just at this moment in time where it's, it's a really hopeful story to me, I think, that you have these ecosystems that are flourishing, and, and the First Nations as well, who have been through all of the depravities that, that every First Nation in Canada has suffered. Coastal First Nations are really bouncing back and getting their, you know, finding their feet, and the youth there are really proud to be, that, you know, Heltsuk and Heisla and Gitgat. There's, there's just a ton of optimism there. And the sense that you have now these oil tankers who could enter that ecosystem and just blare on through, even without an accident, you can pretty much kiss the humpback whales goodbye instantly. Because the region they're going through, it's the reason these humpback whales come there is A, to feed, but also to sing to each other. They're highly social creatures. And the waters of British Columbia's central coast are these deep, deep, narrow canyons lined with granite. So they're they're, they're like the windspear center of, of the sea, kind of, you know, just perfect acoustics. So even without a single accident, you add 250 or so massive oil tankers blaring through these channels, and the humpback whales won't be able to see each other. There's also another 300 liquefied natural gas tankers who are scheduled to go down the exact same route. And so that's going to screw, and nobody knows what the impacts of these huge vessels are on, on salmon and herring populations because no one's really studied that. But even, you know, a best-case scenario of no accident, it's re- you're really letting hundreds of bulls loose in the china shop here. And that, of course, is before you look at what would happen if there was to be an oil spill, which, you know, then that's another conversation, I would argue, and many people do, that the odds are really good. Enbridge's own calculations say there's a 20%, 22% chance of an oil spill of 30,000 barrels or greater happening over the lifetime of the project, which would have a catastrophic impact. Uh, especially depending when and where it happens. But the tides and the currents can just, you know, if you look at, they can distribute the oil so far. If you look at Exxon Valdez, happened in 1989 uh, in the Alaskan Panhandle. 25 years later, you can still scoop up oil with your bare hands 700 kilometers from where the accident happened. So that's the kind of distribution and impact that we're having that we're looking at and that everyone's afraid of. I think what occurred to me is that there are so many questions around this project. You yeah. brought up Dilbit in general, and nobody really quite knows how it would react yeah. if it was... Exactly, diluted bitumen, uh, which is you know the, the oil sands project. It's never been spilled at sea in sufficient quantities so people to, to study, so no one knows if it would sink 
or float the way regular light oil does, or would it sort of fractionate and some of it would stay near the surface? Nobody knows. Nobody knows exactly how well oil tankers are going to handle and how much safer tugboats will be in this particular part of the world because no oil tanker, no ship that has ever of that size has ever called to port at Kitimat. The biggest vessel ever to call the port at Kitimat is about a half as big as the smallest oil tanker that would go in there. So all they've, you know, so all they can do is computer simulations. And it's great that they're doing these computer simulations, but it's also, you know, it just does not inspire faith or trust. I mean, there there's a very clear and real reason why oil tankers have never been allowed into Kitimat. It's not by coincidence. There's been there's been actual policies in place to keep oil tankers out of Kit- out of the inside passage, out of Hecate Strait, and all oil tankers coming in and out of Valdez and going to North America and throughout North America have had to steer over 100 kilometers wide of the western shore of Haida Gwaii in Vancouver Island. They've never been allowed into the inside waters because there's just so much con- uh, the confined channels there are about four times longer than the nearest comparable place where oil tankers go through confined channels, which is Norway. Page 128. In case any doubt remains about an oil spill's deleterious effect on ecosystems in general, or British Columbia's coast in particular, I did consult a few specialists once our journey was over. They had several ways of saying the same thing, all of it easily confirmed with a little laptop research. To avoid redundancy, I nominate Otto Langer as their spokesman. Langer spent 32 years working for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and the Department of Environment before it became a ministry. The most immediate effect of uh, spilling oil in the ocean, Langer told me, is acute toxicity, poisoning. Fish death can appear at a few parts per million of oil in the water, he said. Any fish in the immediate neighborhood of, of an oil spill will be exposed to much more than a few parts per million, and once that happens, they do not have any hope of survival. But the greatest concern of oil on our coastal waters is what we see in the press, the massive coating of the intertidal environment, the beaches and the life in those key, essential, and highly productive habitat areas. There was one particular scene in this book uh, where your friend Ilya yells, uh, we need to play it safe. That's the whole theme of this journey. Right. I think you I'm, might have taken an expletive out of that quote. <laughs> absolutely, I did. I feel like that's the underlying message of this whole book, though, is that uh, we need to com- compel this project to play it safe. And uh, Yeah, uh, the precautionary of, principle is what I would think of it as. To and, understand that full picture of the complexities of it. Yeah, exactly. And, I th- you know, that to me is one of the ironies that it's a conservative government that's pushing this project so hard, and yet I don't think they're espousing any actually conservative values in this approach. I think the risks are just, you know, if you look at risk as being 
hazard times consequence, or probably you know hazard being probability of an accident times the consequence, you can lower the the hazard a, a fair degree, you know, and and one would hope that all efforts would be made to lower that hazard, but you could never eliminate it. And the consequence is just astronomically huge if there was to be an accident. And so, and it's not just an aesthetic, it's not just that we're going to ruin the views of the West Coast, you know, it's not just going to be not as pretty as it was. We're talking about a commercial fishery that's worth over a billion dollars and employs over 6,000 fishermen and an ecotourism industry in BC that has similar numbers. Uh, compared to the 250 long-term jobs that Northern Gateway's pipeline would provide us and $80 million a year in taxes uh, at, you know, the federal and provincial and municipal levels. So, you know, not to discount $80 million a year is great, and I think we need to be coming up with alternatives but uh, to make that kind of money. But, I, you know, I, I really do feel strongly that in, in this age of tanking ecosystems, you know, we've already lost all the fish off of our West Coast. Uh, climate change is taking off, and we really have no idea how far it's going to go. Uh, we, this is a world of, in which cumulative impacts are just really stacking up, and we've got camels' backs breaking all over the place from all these piles of straw. And I really think we need to start applying cautionary principles when it comes to ecosystems that are still intact. There's, there's very few places that are as abundant uh, and prolific as the Great Bear Rainforest and as, you know, as BC's interior. And to just play with that for the sake of a, of a quick project uh, when we've got, you know, so much ample evidence. Enbridge itself has, has created so many oil spills with their, with their pi pipelines alone. Uh, and, you know, who knows who's going to be running these oil tankers because it won't be Enbridge. Uh, that, yeah, I really think overall we just, it would be great to see some real conservatism being applied. Over the course of this narrative, over the course of three months that you're on this journey, we get introduced to a number of different people uh, living in these communities along the British Columbia coast. What stood out to you about those people? Oh, man. I mean, I guess their their resoluteness was one of the things that stood out to me. I mean, for these guys, Northern Gateway, and, you know, I'm talking about coastal First Nations mostly. We spent time in, in three communities in particular, in, in Bella Bella, which is home of the Heltsuk Nation, Hartley Bay is home of the Gitgat Nation, and Kitimat Village is home of the Heisla Nation. Uh, and, you know, for these people, Northern Gateway is just the latest in a series of, you know, in a couple centuries of impositions from the outside world, we could say. And, you know, the residential school system is, of course, the most glaring example. But everything, you know, the commercial fisheries uh, were wildly unregulated. And, and so, you know, they came in and overfished the stock and, and to the point of collapse for a number of those stocks. And now they're just starting to recover again. Uh, the logging industry, you know, there's been just one thing after another for coastal First Nations. And now Northern Gateway is the latest and perhaps the most egregious example. And yet they maintain this, This, you know, you could easily understand why they would just burn out and say, you know what, we give up, go ahead and do it. We'll take your 10% equity embridge that you're offering us and, and hope for the best. I mean, I would totally understand if that was their approach. And yet they are so strong and resolute and so adamant that this project will not go forward, that they'll lay their lives down in front, they'll lie down in front of bulldozers and risk death to prevent this from happening. 
and uh, and they do so you know they're they're fiery and they're fierce but they're also incredibly welcoming and they and cheerful to be with and and uh and so to see that combination of of i don't know cheerful perseverance in the face of such a crazy history was really it was really inspiring to me and uh and i just really enjoyed spending time in in, in these communities cuz you know another thing for me was i really had spent almost no time in my life in a First Nations reserve. And so a big part of this trip was about that and 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 you know a lot of what I write about was that experience of being, you know, a white guy to us, two white guys, first generation Canadians barging into these reserves and you know being a little bit nervous about how we would be received. Uh, and yet we were time and again received with open arms and people let us into their houses and and took us around and showed us their sacred spaces and uh, and just embraced us and, and led us into their struggle. A number of the people that were introduced to in the course of this narrative uh, talk about the impact of the proposed Northern Gateway Pipeline to the residential school system that uh, was imposed upon them uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Why is it at that level, in your opinion? I guess it would just be in the potential impact on their lives. So the residential school system needs no introduction, but tearing thousands of children away from their families and forbidding them from speaking their own language, uh, and then you know all the abuses that took place. You know that had a, an incredibly profound impact on their culture, uh, as would a massive oil spill that wiped out all the fish stocks because fish or what they live off of. And they, as a culture, it's what they've lived off of for 10, 15,000 years, ever since they settled in this part of the world at the end of the last ice age. And I think, you know, it's an important point, and it's a, it's a tricky one to discuss. You, you come off sounding like a bit of a hippie uh, to urban audiences, I think, because we have lost a lot of that connection to the land. And, and it's hard to, you know, even just saying that connection to the land, it's hard to, to really grasp and appreciate what it means to a person or a people or a culture that connection to the land if you don't have it because you've never you know if I and I grew up in the city myself so it's 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 only in the last few years I think that I've started to get a glimmering of of what that means to a people to to know that okay every fall the salmon run and we go out and and we go we have our spots along the coast where we catch salmon and we smoke them and then we hold these feasts and we you know we we have place names and we have songs named after the salmon that's just one species there's herring uh the the trees of the forest themselves all of these things are you know inter there's interwoven into the the communities and the cultures and it's in a thousand indefinable ways but i mean from place names to songs to origin stories and mythologies you know just as important as Christianity is to our culture, I would say the landscape and the place is to theirs. And so that's why when they talk about the, the damage that Northern Gateway could do, the damage of an oil spill, you know, this is really an existential threat to them. It's not some aesthetic threat. It's not an abstract thing. It's not even just economic. It's not that it's just going to potentially cost them jobs if there's an oil spill, because actually they'll probably get some. They'll get jobs cleaning up oil. That's sort of a, a common joke that, that we would hear there. That's the only job they're going to get from this project. Uh, but it's it really cuts to the heart of who they are as a people. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I really wanted to write 
a book about this instead of just an, an article or two because I think it takes a long time to put yourself into that frame of mind and to tell that story and to capture it. And, you know, I don't know if I succeeded or not, but that was that was my goal. My final question. Um, I'm curious. There, There's a point in this book where you talk about um, the Northern Gateway Pipeline in comparison to other oil-based projects in Canada and how this this project in particular sort of struck a chord with a lot of people and and uh, magnetized a lot of a lot of positive and negative conversation around the uh, the future of our country. What is it about the Northern Gateway Pipeline in particular that uh, resonates with people? Well, I you know in both the you're right. I think for both the pro and con group, for those who are for it. It was just this this golden egg of Asian markets, you know, like Asia rising, the Chinese dragon is taking off, and meanwhile the American market is tanking, and so it was just this idea that oh wow, Northern Gateway, it's gonna open up the Asian markets, which is, you know, the salvation to our country. Which, by the way, is exactly what I heard in Peru and Colombia and a hundred other third world countries where it's always foreign markets and it's always those foreign investors that are that are gonna save your country, and and you know rarely does does that ever actually happen. Uh, and then for those who were against it, uh, Northern Gateway was just, you know, it wasn't just one more pipeline because, of course, Canada has hundreds of thousands of kilometers of pipeline going all through it. Uh, but here, this is a, an area, both the pipeline itself and the tanker route are punching oil or transporting oil through regions where oil has never been. So the terrestrial route of the pipeline itself actually opens up a, a corner of northern BC that is totally closed to any sort of industrial development. And so as soon as, you know, and that means access roads, that means suddenly now, and this is a region that is full of, you know, oil is not the only resource to be had there. So a lot of eyes were on that of saying, okay, you know, this is just, this is the thin edge of the wedge that's going to open up this whole region. That's the online uh, pipeline route. And then the oil tanker route, of course, I, you know, I think people are very aware that the Great, Great Bear Rainforest is this really incredible global treasure from an ecological standpoint. It's our Amazon of the North. It's the hugest tract of temperate coastal rainforest on the planet. Uh, it is like the one of the last trees on Easter Island, if you look at us, the planet, as being an Easter Island where there's so few monumental wildernesses that are that are left on the planet like this. I mean, we have the Congo Basin, we have the Amazon. There, you know, there's a handful of them left, but really they are... A, very, very, very rare species. And I think especially in British Columbia, people are really aware of that. And I don't honestly know how aware of that they are in the rest of the country. So a big part of this for me now is to try to start having conversations east of the Rocky Mountains and and see what the vibe is and, and see what people think about it. Page 116. It's worth adding that many British Columbians who weren't able to deliver oral testimony before the joint review panel, submitted their opinion in writing instead. For that cohort, the final total was 239 in favor, 9,159 against. That was my conversation with journalist and author Arno Kapetsky. His book, The Oil Man and the Sea, 
was published in 2013 by Douglas and McIntyre. It's available now. This is the CJSR edition. My name is Matt Hergy, and we'll be back after this very short break. Let's think back now to 1993. Do you remember where you were the first time that you saw the imposing logo for the film Jurassic Park? The one with the flattened out T-Rex skeleton? CJSR producer Roshni Nair certainly does. And this week, she had the opportunity to sit down with the logo's creator, graphic designer, writer, and illustrator, Chip Kidd. From CGSR FM 88.5, my name is Roshni Nair. Even if you've never heard his name before, chances are you've read one of his books. Dubbed by many as the closest thing to a rock star in the graphic design world, Chip Kidd has designed more than 1,500 book covers for authors like David Sedaris, Oliver Sacks, Cormac McCarthy, and is perhaps most famous for creating the iconic T-Rex skeleton for Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. By day, Kidd is an associate art director at NOMF, an imprint of Random House. By night, he is a talented writer of graphic novels. His first novel, The Cheese Monkeys, is a satire about his experiences as a graphic design student at Penn State. Kidd's most recent novel is entitled Batman, Death by Design. Chip Kidd, thanks for coming down to the CJSR studios today. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, graphic novels have kind of undergone a sort of renaissance in the last 10 years. Uh, yes. Uh, well, it's what? Oh, God. Um, actually, 15. 15. Um, to be more accurate about it, uh, we published um, a book called um, Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth by an artist named Chris Ware Mm -hmm. in 2000. And um, we actually published way back in the late 80s a book called Mouse, M-A-U-S, by Art Spiegelman. Um, uh, That was back when I was um, very young and I was just working there as a designer. I I didn't have anything to do with that in terms of designer editorial. But that that was the, the... the book, Mouse by Art Spiegelman, um, really was the book that kind of, I think, woke people up to the possibilities of the graphic novel medium and the kind of stories you could tell and the way you could tell them, um, which which was very different. Uh, that would have been, you know, like I said, the late 80s. And then... Then you had... You also... It, that got lumped in with um, The Watchmen, by Alan Moore and The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, even though I mean, those are graphic novels, and I'm a big fan of them. They're they're very different kinds of books than 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 Mouse, which is basically a, a Holocaust memoir. I think um, well, what's interesting about that, and maybe about this time period in general, this contemporary time period, is the intertextuality of these works. Like, yeah. do you think the internet and film? 
kind of play into that kind of popularity of graphic novels today or how they feed into each other almost? Uh, I think it's I think it's possible, although I um, a lot of media observers, critics, what have you, um, do they talk about graphic novels a lot as a quote cinematic medium. Um, I actually, along with a lot of the artists I publish, sort of take issue with that. Um, mainly, you know, I think it that goes as far as um, they're cinematic to the point of, say, using a storyboard to make a film. Um, the, where the huge difference comes in is that film, um, you, you perceive film basically in a passive way. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm not saying that as a criticism at all. But you know, you, you know, you let's say you sit in the theater and the movie starts, and and that's it. And you sit and perceive it. And you know, you can walk out on it if you want. Um, and this is not going into the whole, um, you know, watching it on DVD or what have you. But um, the you know the filmmaker really the director is really. Uh, in charge of your experience that you were going to have with the film. Um, the, the, the graphic novelist or cartoonist um, is only coming sort of halfway. And, and that, again, that's not a criticism at all. The, 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 the audience, when you read a graphic novel, there are certain things that you have control over. You have control over the pacing. Do you want to linger over a page and reread it a couple of times before you turn it? That's up to you. Um, and then there is the ever, um, f uh, you know, graphic novel, cartoon, comics phenomenon of panels and much more importantly, the space between them. The cartoonist can have something going on in one panel and then have something going on completely different in the, in the next. And you as the reader or person experiencing this, you literally fill in that blank. You know, clever and smart cartoonists can do this in, in a very interesting, unexpected way. So that to me is, you know, an, an extremely summed up glib sort of explanation of the difference between a graphic novel and a film. I think the way they're related most in, say, the last 10 years is be, because there have been so many films that are based on graphic novels um, mm -hmm. across all different kinds of genres. All right, so let's get to your nine to five random house job. Okay. The job of designing book covers. Yes. I'm sure every interviewer has asked you, oh, but never judge a book by its cover. Right, right. And that your entire job is against that adage, I suppose. We must judge books by their covers. Um, uh... Or at least Honestly, a little bit. I I think the um, probably the key word there is judge. I oh. think what what we're trying to do, we you know, the collective we, both book cover designers and publishers, is we are trying to get more people to read. So you know that sounds very noble and very self righteous, but really. That is our that is our goal, and yes, we are a business, and we would like to be able to make money doing this. But it really is about getting people to read our books, 
and hopefully buy them. And so the really what the cover then is supposed to do is to get your attention, get your interest, um, and hopefully get you to investigate what the book is actually about. And, uh, and then if you like it, you will buy it. And so there's all different kinds of factors in the publishing uh, industry or business to help make this happen. The cover is only one of them. And I, I'm biased. I mean, I think the cover is an extremely important uh, part of this. But um, word of mouth is, you know, an enormous factor. Uh, reviews are an enormous factor. Uh, and, you know, in, in this age of, you know, Amazon feedback and whatever, more readers than ever can make public what they think of a book. And that can be an enormously good thing, and that can be an enormously not good thing um, for us as a publisher, but it it is the reality. And um, so, you know, judging a book by co its cover, no. Getting your interest in a book by its cover, uh, yes. That's more, I think, what the goal is. Okay. Um, I guess the other idea that comes out of that is that the cover is kind of the public face face of the book. Yes. So when you're reading it on the subway or the LRT in Edmonton, right. uh, that's what people see. And... I guess it was Harry Potter that had the two different, like the kid cover and then the adult version of the cover. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So is it... Was that just here in Canada? I think it was uh, like a UK thing, too. Okay. Because I, I only know the... the U I only the really know the US one. So. Okay. Well, I mean, that's just interesting because they changed words in the title and stuff like that, too, hmm. for the US audience. Um, but, yeah, I guess how important um, or even, I guess, similarly, the rise of Kindle and mm -hmm. how books that people wouldn't be comfortable being seen in public right. are now more popular, shooting up the bestseller lists. I believe even Mein Kampf is up there oh, now. Oh, that's right. I, yeah, I heard about that. And then <laughs> Amazon apologized about it. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, we, we published a, a, a little series of books uh, a little over a year ago mm -hmm. called Fifty Shades of Grey. And um, that, that became sort of the... Um, the poster child, if you will, of the quintessential book that men or women or whoever wanted to read privately on their electronic devices so that people didn't know they were reading them because they they didn't want people to think that they were reading, quote unquote, pornography. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's but still, you know, when, even when I say. Fifty Shades of Grey, you think of the cover instantly. Um, and that's that's what the cover is for, and that's what a good cover is for. And uh, in, in the TED Talk, I finished up by addressing all of this about ebooks and and uh, what it means for design and, and what have you. And my last example was a novel uh, that I designed for um, a Japanese writer named Haruki Murakami. And it's called 1Q84, and the the cover here in Canada was this. They used they used my cover here in Canada, which for which I was 
very um, pleased and excited. Uh, but it very much, as an object, it makes more sense when you see the actual physical book because the the jacket is a semi-transparent sheet of vellum with certain kinds of printing on it so that when you see through it to the binding of the book, it makes a singular image. And if you look at the cover on an iPad or Amazon or whatever, you, you'll see it, you'll see it represented, and it, and it looks fine. But it's not, it, it, you don't get the same kind of experience that you do from the actual physical book. Yeah, and I think there's like a tactility when you're reading. Yeah. Yes. With the pa- even like the kind of paper and the, you know, the shape of the text, even like the feel of the paper. So, do you also di- like do you come up with those elements or uh it all depends on the project. Mm-hmm. For for 1Q84, I oversaw the design of the entire thing. Um and I I love doing that. It's just that the way um, most, frankly, big commercial publishing houses are set up is they'll have a staff that does the jackets and they'll have a staff that handles the interiors um, for various reasons. Um, uh, They are often seen as two different kinds of skill sets, which I take issue with a little bit. But... um, but the, the point is, usually the jacket designers are just doing the jacket. Now, in the case of Murakami, I've been able to, on several occasions, be able to design, to, to do an integrated design throughout the entire thing, which I think is the, the, the ideal. But then um, what, I, what is necessary in those cases is I have to have an assistant, which I normally don't have. I normally do everything myself. But there's so many little details, even in just if, if it's a prose novel. But there's so many design elements in uh, something like that that need to be paid attention to. And I, and I have to say, you know, uh, on, on a Kindle, they sort of don't pay attention. Um, and uh, you see especially with poetry, which is a whole other issue. But um, I've seen poetry books on the Kindle where they've rebroken the poem, when they've rebroken the lines. And you just think, wow, that's a, that's a real cautionary tale um, that, you know, if we're not dil- diligent about that, uh, you can completely change the perception of a work of art. And it's, it's kind of scary. Yeah. Do you think Kindles are like the equivalent of fast food in a way? Like, <laughs> um, I don't think the Kindle itself is is an equivalent of fast food. It's an interesting analogy. I think the problem with it that I have is that it is so limited in its design, in the typefaces, in the type size, um, and I I know it's gotten better. Um, but it's just not the way I want to perceive a text. And maybe it's just because I'm old-fashioned. But I, I don't think they take the kind of design care with it that, say, an iPad does. And, and getting this back to the graphic novelists that we publish, um, none of them have wanted their works in a digital form. 
And this fall, the first exception to that is going to be a guy named Richard McGuire, who's um, creating a book called Here, which is very hard to explain, but it's 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 brilliant, and it's and it's going to be it's going to be a physical book. But he's also rethought it and engineered it to also be an app, and we are su- totally supporting that um, in in every way we can. Uh, but that's what he wanted to do. And in the past, when we've um, introduced the idea of just basically generally adapting um, a graphic novel to the screen just in a very conventional way, just scanning in page after page, um, none of them uh, want to do it because of the tactile experience. And, you know, even if you want to get uh, sentimental about it, the smell of the ink. Um, and and there's a real craft to, to bookmaking that, um, that not that there isn't a craft to making an app, but it's just a different kind of aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, the, the book here is an upcoming book. Yes. And so uh, your process, when does that begin? Like when do you start designing for a book? Uh, cover. Well, the process starts by reading the manuscript in raw form. Okay. Uh, whether it's a Word document or, and I, you know, I probably will make your listeners bristle by saying that you know I get the Word document and I print it out, <laughs> and I I read the book in manuscript on paper. Um, in fact, I brought three manuscripts with me on this trip because I'm here for a week and I've got work to do. And also um, we all in publishing basically have to read on our own time. Um, it's rare that you can sit at your desk and and read the manuscript. You're really expected to do that on your own. Um, so I read the manuscript and then um, then there's all different kinds of, because I work on so many different kinds of books, uh, there's all different kinds of ways to um, pursue the process, and that um, that's a big part of what I'm going to be talking about on uh, tomorrow night. Um, and there's also what I also try to impress upon students is um, in the real world, uh, rejection is a big part of what you're going to have to deal with. Um, in terms of coming up with a design and not getting it approved and having to to come up with a, another solution to 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 a problem and it, you know it happens all the time and it's actually a it's a great skill to uh, develop um, because there are there's more than one ways there's more than one way to solve a problem and uh, it doesn't hurt to figure out how to solve a certain problem any number of different ways, as long as they're effective. That was CJSR's Roshni Nair in conversation with graphic designer Chip Kidd. And that's it for this episode of the CJSR edition. Thanks for tuning in. This week... The program was produced by those terrifying raptors that ambushed those people in that dark laboratory in Jurassic Park 3. With assistance from myself, Matt Hergy, and Roshni Nair. 
Thank you very much today to Chip Kidd, Arno Kopetsky, and Bob Brophy for reading excerpts from the 2013 book, The Oil Man and the Sea. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5, local public radio in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. For more information on this series or any of the other spoken word programming that you hear on CJSR every week, you can visit cjsrnews.com. And have a great weekend.